Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning and welcome to the Michael Reid Show with Alan Cantwell. It's Friday 29th of September on the programme this morning. The Garda Commissioner has said he's willing to enter into intensive negotiations with the Garda Representative Association in an effort to resolve a dispute over rosters. Research reveals that older persons don't see themselves as rights holders. A full-scale reform of the disability sector is needed, according to the rehab group. It held a demonstration outside the Dáil yesterday, calling on the government to invest in services. A demand for property is holding up despite interest rate increases, and the ongoing supply shortages is supporting prices. The latest house price report from property listings website daf.ie suggests. You can contact the programme this morning on 86 658 or you can email Michael at lmfm.ie First this morning, the Garda Commissioner has said he's willing to enter into intensive negotiations with the Garda Representative Association to resolve a dispute over rosters. In a statement, Drew Harris insisted that he has not imposed any preconditions on talks and that he's willing to compromise to reach agreement. Commissioner Harris said the so-called Westmanstown roster was the only agreed roster that he'd given three months' notice and that it would be reintroduced in November. Well, joining us uh, to discuss this and where this may end is the Sinn Féin spokesperson on Justice and TD for Kerry, Pa Daly. Deputy, thank you uh, for joining us this morning. Um, I know that you have have, um, made contact or believe that the policing authority should intervene to try and resolve that. I'll come to that in a moment, but if you were Minister for Justice, would you deem it necessary now to intervene in this dispute? Well, I think that uh, the news over the last few days in relation to uh, the the drugs, the attempted uh, or the alleged drugs importation is uh, a telling reminder uh, of the challenges that are, are faced around the whole state and uh, no more so in in County Meath and uh, and in Louth, uh, the, the TDs there, Johnny uh, Gork and Darren O'Rourke, tell me that uh, that in Meath you have the lowest number of guards per head of population in the whole country. Yeah, I, I get that, deputy. But can I get to the question that I asked you, and that was, if yeah. you were minister for justice, would you intervene at this particular juncture? Well, I think that the the, the way for the government to intervene is on a wider. Uh, scale uh, the, the challenges that are being faced by the uh, by the guards around the country are, and the frustration. I've been dealing with guards uh, when I was working as a solicitor 
uh, around the, the country for about 25 years. I've never seen the level of frustration, dissatisfaction and uh, amongst members of Angarda Siakana. And that certainly hasn't helped in uh, getting us to where we are today. OK, so I take that that's, that's a no, that if you were Minister for Justice, you wouldn't intervene. And that's fine. So let's well, just well, move how on. I would, how, how we would intervene is on a wider level. Uh, to try and address the frustrations of Angarda Siakana, of the members, by first of all introducing uh, the regulations for the Garda Reserve to get yeah. more presence on the streets, because that is the challenge uh, that that you see in in Mead and in Loud there as well as every as, as well mm. as down in Kerry and everywhere everywhere else. So those regulations aren't going to be published until the end of the year by the department in order to supplement the guards that are there on the street. That can that should be done straight away. We shouldn't have to wait until the end of the year. What we would also do is we would implement the uh, recommendations five years ago. They were published by the Commission for the Future of Policing in order to get, again, guards away uh, from non-core duties and onto the streets. And it's onto the streets where... For example, in in Meath, you have Ratoke, which is the largest town in the country, without a guard station. And uh, your TDs there keep telling me this. And uh, also, we don't want a situation where services, and there have been reports that, for example, domestic violence units and community guard services may be under threat. Okay, well, 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 perhaps, Deputy, Deputy, can we just deal with the here and now? And the here and now is that we have a situation where there is little or no relationship between the rank and file members and their boss, Drew Harris. There is irreparable damage, their words, not mine. The likelihood of finding a resolution to this are pretty slim because you will have seen the statements from the GRA after every uh, point of negotiation they had with True Harris. They've more or less said a waste of time. So what we're dealing with is an actual crisis that we don't have the time to look at it in the round. We need to deal with the here and now. How do we do that when confidence does not exist between both parties? Well, certainly there are major challenges between both parties. But having spoken to some people who are, you know, involved in the negotiations, uh, you know, I see that some concessions have been made. For example, by uh, by the commissioner yesterday, that there aren't any red line issues on his part. That there is a uh, there is difficulties between them as to the stage one and stage two part of the process and the WRC and and those type of issues. But that's not something that we would get involved in. Yeah. But I wouldn't be as pessimistic quite as you are by putting it say that things are totally uh, eliminated or gone, and that there is no no negotiation so because what, yeah. they, they have been, they have met twice this week already. They are breaking up then to, so that the commissioner will be meeting the four different organisations over the course of the next week and bring them all in together uh, by the following weekend, and and that should I hope give some sort of space. Um, to to iron out the the difficulties in relation to the rosters and some of the the other guards tell me that you know they feel that they're constantly someone is looking over their shoulder that nobody has their back they have to introduce the dispatch system which you probably know about mm. uh, and where uh, you you call the guard the station and you're dispatched into you know in Kerry you used to go to Cork. In, in Drogheda, uh, okay. you have to go to uh, Deputy, can I just, can I just oh. perhaps just come back to where we're at at the moment and the um, utterances from Drew Harris to say there's no preconditions on the table to these talks. Now, is he being disingenuous when he says that? Because he says it's still the Westmanstown agreement in terms of rosters that are there 
So it strikes me he's not for budging around that, but there's no preconditions around people just coming to have a discussion around what the Westmanstown Agreement is. But it doesn't strike me as that is up for negotiation no more than the GRA are prepared to budge on what their proposals are with rostering. Yeah, well, I noticed uh, that what he said in relation to the Westmanstown Agreement, but... Um, you know, if there wasn't any hope of uh, some sort of compromise, I don't think they would be entering into the intensive round of negotiations that are due to take place next week. So I would be hopeful that there, that some sort of arrangement can be made to address the difficulties that are there, and the the uh, you know th- that we can get back. So we do, because we don't want the situation where services are being pulled, and where particularly community guards, which do such good work on the ground, for example, in Dundalk around Cox's and more of no more, um, to, uh, that those services will remain uh-huh. in place. Our, our priority is to make sure that the domestic violence units, uh, the detective units and the specialised units and community guards all remain in place to deal with the issues. And nobody that, disagrees that with that, but however, you know this, Deputy, that we're heading towards the budget on the 10th of October. That's the date in which the, um, the GRA have more or less said nobody is going to be putting their hand up to do overtime. That's going to create a difficulty and you know as well as I do the protests that will be taking place and we will need certain units there, public order units, in order to to police the budget. It's not going to happen though. What do we do? Do we bring in the army? Would you countenance that notion? I I that that would be a very drastic step, Alan. I don't, I don't think we we will be going there. I know, but we um, may not have a choice in the matter, Deputy, because if there's nobody, if there isn't sufficient policing to police the budget, we have a problem. Yeah, well, you're you're really talking worst case scenario there, Alan. But well, I, no, I but we, I'm not talking worst case. It's it's a realistic proposition. If we were to listen to to what um, the the president of the GRA, Brendan O'Connor, had to say, that no nobody would be available. Now I recognise that guard the resources will be able to be pulled from uh, outlying areas of Dublin and around the country, but that also creates a problem. Well, it does. Um, look, there. The, what I, from from talking to guards around Dublin in particular, uh, they are asked uh, to come in from the outlying stations such as Clondalkin and Tella, which are already reduced in numbers, no more than Kelsgarda station having been reduced in numbers, and they have to draw in from Beliver and that boy and that. But uh, you know that there there is there is I, not a difficulty around. You saw the protests last week and uh, everybody was able to get in. A, a plan was in place, notwithstanding the fact that, uh, there, you know, there, there was a, kind of a higher level of protest, if I could call it that, uh, than we have ever seen probably uh, in the last three years in particular. Um, but I have confidence that the guards will be able to ensure uh, that, uh, deputies and the staff around Leinster House will be able to uh, have access in and out. E- even last week, um, when we weren't, when we were advised not to go in the front uh, door uh-huh. of Leinster House, uh, there was a provision made so where we could use some of the exits around uh, the Merrion Square side. So I do I don't see it being a likelihood that. Okay, can, can I ask won't you? Be able to get in and vote on the budget. Yeah, okay, but uh, aside aside from that, can I ask you? Are you of the view that 
essentially rank-and-file members who agreed to go along with this particular proposal, which was put at the delegate conference in Kilkenny the other day, that they're essentially turning their backs on the raison d'etre, which is to serve and protect. That's what they're supposed to be doing, but they're deciding not to do that for whatever reason, whether they deem it to be the right reason or the wrong reason. They're there to serve and protect. I don't... I, I don't think uh, that they are turning their backs on serving and protecting the communities. I, I think, in fact, uh, a lot of the frustration uh, by Gardaí uh, comes from the fact that they feel that, that they're not able to get out and serve and protect uh, within the communities, that they are uh, overburdened with uh, administrative paperwork. Uh, they feel that uh, management sometimes doesn't have their back, that they are unsupported, and that the numbers have declined uh, year on year over the past three years. Pre-COVID, we had Garda numbers approaching 14,500. And uh, in January of this year, uh, it, it reduced even further from January to June of this year, so that we're now down uh, on, under the 14,000, mm. notwithstanding the fact that it was flagged to the government that there was going to be an issue because of the low numbers that, that were attending Temple Moore. So I think that uh, you know, we communities need Gardaí to make them feel safe, um, uh, and the, you know, the, no more so in Louthan Meath than than Kerry or or Dublin's north inner cities. But we have the same issues there yeah, as of we have but, ev- everywhere else. But but um, like but, it, but it, like it or not, deputy, we have an individual who's presiding over the guard, the rank and file guard, the sergeants and, and inspectors and and other members who does not have the confidence of rank and file, and that is Drew Harris. And if this particular dispute comes to a resolution, whether it be amicable or not. He has lost the room. As far as rank and file are concerned, he is not the CEO who should be leading this particular force or steering the ship. So in that respect, he really is not the sort of individual that we need going forward. That's reasonable to assume on the basis of what rank and file are saying. Well, it's, it's, it's a clear yes. I'm, I'm asking you, do well, you feel he's, fit, he's fit for purpose? You're asking me in that way, Alan. Uh, you know, do, do we have confidence in in the manager of Angardishi Akona? You know, we we do have confidence in him going managing the force uh, going forward. But the force do, don't do, have do, confidence do in him. It's, it's like your it's like you're like your local GAA club. If the team don't have confidence in the manager, what is the point in continuing the relationship? You have to get rid of the manager. Well. You, do the team have have uh, a role in saying who the chairman of the club is? They probably don't. No, they probably and, uh, don't. You're absolutely right. But if you've lost the room, you've lost anyway. direction. Well, look, there's always challenges. There have been challenges over the past number of years. They are getting worse. Due, we would say, to government inaction in not dealing with the, the, the problems that are there. And uh, we must remember that Fine Gael, for example, have been in charge of the Justice Ministry for the past 12 years. And uh, the problems have been uh, creeping up uh, over that time, no more so in the amount of resignations that are taking place uh, and and the numbers that are falling. Um, We acknowledge the vote that took place by members of a GRA, and I know from dealing with them on on a weekly basis uh, the frustrations that are there. um, But, you know, these things happen in okay, organisations. Deputy, it's before I go... It's unprecedented, yeah. probably, all right. I, I acknowledge that. Bef- before I go, um, Deputy, I must ask you of your view 
of the minister's role in all of this? Do you have confidence that she is somebody who can, albeit not getting involved uh, directly in this dispute, but can steer parties to a resolution? Do you have confidence that she can do that? Well, I, I think that uh, in fairness to Minister McEntee, uh, she has taken the right uh, view in not getting involved in the nitty-gritty of negotiations and saying when odd roster should take place, whether it's Westmanstown or anything else. On a wider level, however, the, the, there is a crisis in morale country, I think, what the minister, what the minister said, uh, and the, the wider issues in relation to recruitment, retention, uh, establishing, for example, a, re- a retention task force, and the non-implementation of the recommendations of the Commission for the Future Policing, uh, they are some. They are the issues, the wider issues that the Minister should be addressing. OK, Pat Daly, Sinn Féin spokesperson on Justice. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Welcome back. You can email the programme, email michael at lmfm.ie or WhatsApp 0861800658. I want to stay with the um, GRA story and look at it in the context of how it is impacting both on the government and the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. And I want to cover other political matters, particularly around negotiations and horse trading with the budget and what we can expect. No better man to talk about those things than Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with the Mead Chronicle joins us online. Gavin, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, let's, let's just deal with Helen McEntee for the moment. She's walking a pretty tight, tight rope at the moment, but she has no other choice but to keep her nose out of it and not get directly involved because it, it, this dispute, to an extent, doesn't come under her purview. It's the responsibility of the Commissioner and the GRA to sort it out with her perhaps just having a watching eye of what's going on. Yeah, this is the permanent problem of, of ministers now when they're trying to oversee some kind of dispute in some area that they aren't directly over the, the managerial stuff of. So if, if you imagine a parallel example, for example, if there was a strike for you know junior doctors, then you'd all be looking at, well, what's the director general of the HSE doing? What, what's Bernard Goster doing, the CEO? What, what's he going to be able to do to try and bring everyone back to the table and resolve it? And Stephen Donnelly is there then responsible, hoping that everything works out, but knowing that it will be mud in his face if the whole thing doesn't come together. And that's really the, the paradox of being in government in this era of everything being governed at arm's length, that Helen McEntee can't be seen to be getting involved too much because that will be seen as undermining the, the Garda Commissioner in some way. This is an internal process. He's the Commissioner. He can't step on his toes. He has to try and make sure that everything comes to some kind of uh, peaceful or, or mutually agreeable conclusion. Uh, but at the same time, knowing that everyone is going to be looking directly at the Minister to say what's going on if there is uh, a breakdown in Garda services, a withdrawal of time, uh, the, the Drew flu, as it's called, and then maybe some impact on law and order and what that all might be. So it's always a very difficult tightrope, as you say, for ministers to walk, and it's one that Helen McEntee is, is unfortunately, for her position, uh, resigned to walking for the time being. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of her association, she will be politically damaged by this, albeit we may not know just yet. But if there was a, a poll taken in a snapshot of time, maybe on Monday, it may make for difficult reading for Helen McEntee. Yeah, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily care about chains of governance, or they don't see it as being important that a, a disciplined, uniformed force would always make sure that the the integrity of the chain of command is maintained. But what they just want to see is that the guards are happy with the pay that they're getting and that the guards are going ahead and doing all their services. And it's going to, it's still going to feel like, even if she wasn't responsible for the breakdown, that it's all on her head if the whole thing doesn't come together. So, you know, if, if the not quite industrial action, Drew Flew thing comes together in the next couple of weeks and we have uh, Gardy en masse uh, phoning in sick to the job next Tuesday and then again the Tuesday after on budget day when 
as we all expect, security will be fairly tight around Leinster House. There will be large numbers of people who aren't happy with the direction of things inside and they will make themselves heard. And if the guards don't feel like they've got the appropriate manpower to be able to pull that off safely and everything else, it is going to look like it is a problem of governance because ultimately Helen McIntyre can't really stand inside Leinster House and say, oh, you know, we're finding extra money in the budget next year to increase guard numbers by a 1,000 if actually the, the existing numbers outside just aren't even enough to, to keep the, ra- the the rabbit hordes from the gates. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's always going to fall on her head, and that, that's just what makes this whole thing so tricky, that she'll have to try and find some way maybe behind the scenes to grease the wheels or to try and see if there's some way that she could broker somebody to coming back to the table. But, of course, she can't get directly hands-on involved, even though that's a, a, a more uh, finicky point that maybe a lot of people on the ground are, are entitled not to care about. Strikes me, Gavin, that the narrative on this has shifted, not significantly, but slightly, and it seems that the Commissioner has wrested back a certain sense of control on this particular story when he says, yes, I'm going to negotiate, there'll be no preconditions. He's almost trying to turn the GRA into the villains of this process, that he's open and he wants this negotiation, whilst the GRA are not minded to have any sense of conversation as long as that roster's on the table. Yeah, that, that's what, one way of looking at it, that he has managed to look like the more responsible person in the room. The other way to say it, of course, is that it could be construed as a massive climb down, that if he's basically saying, right, let, let's come into talks and I'm not ruling anything out. He's, he's basically inviting the GRA to go in there and determine carte blanche what their actual demands are and then to take it from there. So, yes, you could see it as him being the responsible person. I mean, of, of course, the provision of Garda services is ultimately on his head. So he has to make sure that we don't get to this kind of nuclear option of uh, people en masse not going into work for the next five Fridays. Um, but you could also say, yeah, well, actually, this is him having stuck to his guns uh, for months, talking about the reintroduction of this roster and going back to the, the 2019 situation, suddenly then to be told, actually, no, we're not doing that. And uh, him to have to climb down and say, right, you know, uh, four or five days out from this possibility of, of mass absences, let's go back to the drawing board. I mean, there's two ways to look at it. In one way is that it actually goes to show his weakness in trying to keep command of everybody. And the difficulty as well for him and the government is that public opinion is very much firmly behind the Gardaí in this uh, particular dispute. That's a problem. Yeah, absolutely, because there's, there's no doubting that the sympathies of, of your average person who'll be you know, going and doing the grocery shop this weekend or the average person who'll be tuning in on Tuesday week to see what kind of increase they might get in their take-home pay in the budget, they're ultimately on the side of the guard on the beast, the person on the street, because they know they're at the front line of some of the uglier parts of society and that they, they are the ones who are uh, first on scene whenever there is a moment of distress. They're, they're the ones that have to go and knock on your door if somebody needs to bring you the worst of bad news. They, they are the ones who keep the whole thing together. And of course, they are the ones who are always going to have uh, the greatest degree of public sympathy. They are the ones who, frankly, are put in harm's way. And if there's ever going to be any dispute between you know, the, the man who's responsible for running the whole thing, the man who does command a certain amount of respect himself, but if, if it does get to a point where there's a, a public tug of war for affections between the rank and file members and the commissioner, there's only ever going to be one winner. Of course. OK, Gavin, we're running out of time. I want to touch on the negotiations that have been ongoing throughout the week with uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath over budgetary spend and what the departments are looking for. What a deal with social welfare. There's an expectation that we'll get the double whammy, the Christmas bonus. Is it going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm almost certain that it will happen at this point. It's almost now baked back into things where previously 
They've been talking about it always being a thing that might happen if there was spare enough money at the end of the year. They've gotten to the point now where they do routinely budget off enough money for a double payment at the end of the year, so that will be okay. The scale of the increase in the core, uh, core rates for next year still up in the air. Some suggestions that they might try to look at repeating last year's increase of €12 Euro per week on some of the, the basic core rates. That in itself last year was lower than the rate of inflation, but this year might be marginally higher or keeping pace with the rate of inflation. So if people did lose out to a point last year, they might possibly gain a little bit on this front. It should be said that there is a little bit of a shadow being cast across all of these discussions, whether it's social welfare or payroll or anything else. And that's the two things. The overspend in the Department of Health and mm-hmm. in the Department of Children. Now, the Department of Children is responsible, as people will know, for integration. So it's ultimately footing the bill for trying to find accommodation for 70,000 Ukrainians and 22 or 23,000 people in the direct provision system. That budget overran this year by 1.1 billion euros simply yeah. because of the volume of Ukrainians that have come into the country, which wasn't what was budgeted for at the start of the year. Now, the government says, of course, that, that is a price that they think it's, it's humane to cover, and that's fine. But it means that next year, the budget for the Department of Children has to be 1.1 billion higher than this year, simply to stand still. And when you want to try and then do anything else by way of increasing public services beyond that, trying to find you know, therapists for disabled children and the likes, that then eats into any more money that you've got. And similarly, on the health side, health got the biggest budget ever last year, 23 billion euro, still 1 billion short for running day-to-day services. So next year, unless you get 24, you're actually falling behind. So it, when you only had you know, 5.3 or 5.4 billion on the grand scheme of things, it seems like an awful lot of money to be able to put into new day-to-day services next year. But actually, the guts of half of it is already gobbled up by simply trying to stand still because of overspends this year. And that's really casting a long cloud over everything because anyone who wants more money is suddenly finding it a little bit harder to go. To get it. Um, are we being somewhat presumptuous believing that this may or could potentially be a pre-election budget? Uh, I think if there was any aspiration for it to be a pre-election budget, I think that's probably ebbed away for the reasons that I've just mentioned. Uh, I mean, I think everyone is always keeping an open mind in government. I, I genuinely don't think that Leo Varadkar himself has made up his mind about when he might like to try and go to the Oris, dissolve the doll and run to the country. There's been some schools of thought that he would wait as late as possible, March 2025, hoping that the wind comes out of Sinn Féin sales in the meantime. Uh, you could allow for for two big budgets by then. You could have a big budget in 12 months' time and then prospectively say, right, let's go to the country after that. But, uh, there was always some people who were making allowances for the prospect that, yes, if this was a good budget and was received positively, then, then let's go for it. Let's put and run now. But I suspect the momentum is going away from that prospect simply because, as I said, they thought they would have nearly five and a half billion for new measures, uh-huh. and actually, it's already down to three before you have any overspends anywhere, and that's really taking the wind out of a lot of sales. Just before I let you go, Gavin, you alluded to Sinn Fein there, and I was looking at the latest opinion poll, and what was striking about that poll was the age profile of the voters. They very much uh, tapped into the psyche of the younger voters. Now we know that the younger voter is difficult to get out when it comes to to elections, but if they can get them out, it's a real problem for the other parties. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the latest that Ipsos poll for the Irish Times yesterday showed that I think it was 44% uh, of under-25s were now more likely to vote for Sinn Féin or under-35s, and it's, it's a massive lead. You're talking about 44% for them, and then the other parties, the main ones, are all only in the teens. As you say, the big issue is mobilising them to actually get them to vote, but I think nearly more strikingly is the fact that Sinn Féin now lead in every age group, right up to those who are aged 65 and older, and they're actually within spitting distance of the, the traditional two parties uh, on that age front. So although, yes, their, their command among the under-35s is huge, actually when you look at the 35s to 44s, people who would either like to have a mortgage or are struggling to pay their mortgage, or those who are 50-plus who have children coming up and they simply don't know how they're going to be able to afford to live, even those who are themselves 
relatively comfortable, do accept that there might be a need for change, and that's going to bolster Sinn Féin's course as well. So yes, that, that even the under-35s is great, but actually their their command in the, the 30s to 60s is really worth watching as well, because they will show up in big numbers next time. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with the Meath Chronicle. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. New research into older persons' perceptions of themselves reveals that only 35% are aware that they are rights holders on the basis of age. Almost 40% of older people feel they have been treated unfairly due to their age. 88% feel that government does not take enough notice of their needs. Joining us this morning is Mary Harkin, Policy and Research Manager with Age and Opportunity. Mary, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Before we get in to the stats and the findings of this, can you just explain to me what the public sector equality and human rights duty is? So the public sector equality and human rights duty um, charges everybody who's working in the public service with the responsibility to promote equality, prevent discrimination and protect the human rights of its employees, its customers, service users and everyone affected by their policies and plans. So, um, so you know, I suppose we're all born with human rights and um, um, it is, it is, it, it, so we're rights holders, you know, as citizens. Okay, but... The reason I ask you that is, it is a sad reflection on society that we have to have a charter in place like that to protect the rights of the elderly in this country, is it not? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the public sector equality and human rights duty applies to, uh, applies to all nine, you know, areas of, of, um, of discrimination, you know what I mean? So it's not just about older people. This survey particularly uh, deals with older people. And, and yes, the findings are quite stark, you know, um, the um, the idea that... Um, a lot of older people do feel that they are treated unfairly um, on the basis of their age. And I suppose, you know, we, we all have human rights. We don't lose them as we get older. But um, there's certainly, you know, the, the, the ageism is prevalent in society. And it does mean that people's rights are compromised. And this research, I suppose the, the, the point of this research is that it, it, we really set out to find out, do older people understand that they are rights holders? You know, that they, and and, and, um, and only 35% of our respondents um, indicated that they did understand that they were rights holders. So if you don't think that you're a rights holder, then you're less likely to to challenge um, a situation where your rights are being um, undermined. Well, can you give me an example of day-to-day challenges of ageism, of discrimination that um, older people may face? Yeah, well, two of the examples, I suppose, that came through in this particular piece of research were um, employment, staying in employment. So a lot of uh, people responding to the survey said that they were feeling forced into retirement, even if they wanted to keep working, even if their managers wanted them to keep working, um, and they felt they still had a lot to contribute. So that kind of came through as a recurring theme. And then another example is probably a little bit more um, um, uh, implicit, you know, was that one um, respondent uh, explained that she had gone in to have a minor uh, procedure on a finger and was asked a whole load of questions about her ability to get up and down the stairs and um, memory and, you know, questions. And when she when she actually asked why she was being asked all these questions, they said that this is just policy for anybody over 60. So, you know, um, so that kind of is feeding into, you know, stereotypes um, of older people as frail and vulnerable, even though there could be, you know, huge differences between um, people of different chronological ages. Is there a fear on the part of um, older people to push back when they're in situations like that? Or do they tend to just walk away and say, well, this shouldn't have happened, but we'll do nothing about it? 
Um, no, um, it, uh, a lot of older people. So there's a lot of internalised ages, and so older people kind of say, "Oh well, you know, I'm 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 old, so this is how I'm going to be treated." So there is a lot of acceptance of poor, of you you know of of um, of under uh, you know poor services, if you yeah. like, you know. Um, um, however, you know, I think raising the raising the notion that people are rights holders will give older people more kind of you know confidence to challenge situations. Where they where they feel that they are being treated badly, and what is the situation for them if they want to get recourse to an independent body to whatever it may be in order to to put their point and get action taken so it doesn't happen again? Well, it depends on what that what, you know. It depends on kind of if it's you know. Uh, if it's insurance, financial services, if it's, you know, driving licences, if it's healthcare, you know, there'd be different public bodies that would be responsible for discharging the public sector duty in that regard. But as a first point of call, they can contact us in Agent Opportunity and there are other organisations in the age sector that would be, you know, very aware of older people as rights holders and would be very happy to help people to address any unfairness in that regard. You made an interesting point in relation to the survey and that was around uh, particularly work where individuals reach a certain age and they feel they're being pushed out, although they don't want to be pushed out. Why is that happening? Because it strikes me that if you have somebody who has a wealth of experience and understanding of something, that they are best placed in order to continue to work in the best interest of an organisation and the best person perhaps to train younger people who are coming into the organisation. So why are we continuing with the mentality of when you get to a certain age, that's it, you're done, move on. Don't get it. Well, it's 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 ageism, really. You know, it's it's kind of that idea that's there that that idea that older people are, you know, don't have. It's stereotyping, um, essentially. It's 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 actually it is it is stereotyping at its most, um, at its most base, yeah. And in fact, at the beginning of COVID, um, the the people at uh, Trinity College Dublin who do the longitudinal survey on aging, you know, they released um, a very pertinent piece of work which outlined how much older people contribute to society in terms of work, um, and in terms of unpaid work as well. You know, so the paid work, obviously, you know, but then there's a lot of volunteer work that older people do, um, as well. So there's a huge, huge make, making huge, huge contributions to society. A lot of it's on very invisible, so volunteering, caring, all of those kinds of jobs that people are doing. Some of them are paid, some of them are not paid. Um, but, um, but yeah, so older people being forced out of the workplace before they are ready to retire is just, you know, it's just pure ageism. OK, we must leave it there. Thank you for joining us. That was uh, Mary Harkin, Policy and Research Manager with Age and Opportunity. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. What does the classroom of the future look like? Who's in it and how are they being taught? They are just among a number of questions that were explored at the Education and Training Board's Ireland Annual Education Conference, uh, which was held in Cork. We're joined by Paddy Lavelle, General Secretary of the ETBI. Uh, Paddy, good morning. So what does the future of the classroom look like? because you have had many eminent individuals and stakeholders addressing that conference. I presume they have their own views on it. But to to distill it down, what is it looking like? There were lots of disparate views. Really, really interesting to hear about how people felt that AI was going to be a real revolution in classroom terms because of the, the ability it has to provide instant feedback to students, to help them to organize themselves, to help them to decide what it is that they need to improve on and to make sure that their strengths are 
amplified. But at the back of it all was the importance of the teacher and the relationship with the teacher. So a lot of people were saying that no matter how far we go with technology, we still need teachers in the classrooms to care for students, to help motivate them and to provide them with that relationship that makes them want to learn and to do their best in class. Can I talk to you a little bit about AI first off? There's a view that the genie is out of the bottle on this one, that there is very over, very little oversight and very little understanding in relation to its impact on education. Yes, we do recognise it has a role to play, but, but on the other side of it is what is that role and how do we control it? Are we way behind the curve on this one, Paddy? No, I don't think so. I think that in the everyday we're already all using AI. So artificial intelligence is built into most of the applications that we use already, like Google Maps. Anybody who's using Google Maps is using um, artificial intelligence because that's how you derive all these insights into what's happening from, you know, saying that your journey is going from Dundalk down to Drogheda. You know what the traffic is like. That's Mm -hmm. coming from data collected through AI sources. What's new about AI now is what they call generative AI, which means that if you put a question into ChatGPT... Well, well, this is my point. It's taking the learning away from the individual and relying on AI to give you the answers that you require. Yeah, and if you look at how we examine or assess our students at the moment, um, a lot of teachers are helping students by teaching them how to reply to, say, an essay task. Um, If you take away the, the burden from students of grammar checks or spelling checks, then you're starting to look at a different set of skills. And really, it was around that set of skills that the focus was on about how students in the new senior cycle and in the currently in the junior cycle are looking at the skills that they're developing and the teachers are looking at those skills to make sure that beyond routine tasks that teachers often focus on, like spelling and grammar and you know how you, how you phrase a sentence, what is there that we're looking for? And it's mostly insight developed through um, thinking about the task and thinking about how to plan it, how to project manage it and how to work with others. So they're the kind of skills that are going to be emphasised in the new curriculum and are being emphasised in the new curriculum and our assessment will have to catch up. But is there a danger that we will become somewhat over-aligned on AI in the classroom, that we it'll become accepted and it will be, I won't say abused, but it'll be used beyond what it's supposed to be used for? Yeah, some of the speakers actually spoke to that very point, and they said, like every every, if you think of any technology that came in, go back to the wireless, back the radios, everybody sitting around the radio, that that was always feared as well by people who didn't understand what the implications were. Same with television, same with anything that comes in. And AI is a bit like that. We have to learn how to manage it, to regulate it, to get the best out of it, and to make sure that it is useful in the classroom and that it doesn't take away from students actually learning. And if you think about it, that's what we're doing in class. We're helping students to learn. Okay, let's talk about then the opportunities for the future in education, how it's thought, how uh, the interaction is developed between student and teacher. And I want to go back perhaps to the lessons that we may have learned but never uh, adopted during COVID, that there was a real opportunity there to change our understanding and the manner in which we deliver the education model but we didn't really seem to use it as an opportunity to initiate that change. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I think if, if you look at what the inspector said about what happened during COVID, you'll find that there were there were pockets of really excellent practice and there were places where teachers and students struggled. 
And that was across the country. There were places where things worked really well and other places where maybe it wasn't so well. But if you think about what AI can do, it can develop, it can help teachers to personalise the learning, to look at each individual student's strengths and weaknesses and help them, you know, to create a customised learning path for them. And that's really important. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. can provide immediate feedback to students. Um, yet the, at the conference we heard about um, administra- the, the administrative checks that teachers do, putting in marks um, for students, how they're performing. And one of the, the lecturers that was there said that it would be a, a re- that within a month of a student starting on a course, they would be able to predict their final marks after three years. And that, that's the power of being able to take daily um, points of reference mm-hmm. for the students' behaviour, students' performance and be able to aggregate that and say, this, is, this looks like this kind of student. And at that stage, then you can make interventions. OK, uh, so the good things that came out of COVID did, I suppose, were they accelerated post-COVID to be introduced into the classroom or did they just fail to gather that momentum that was required? I think lots of teachers have developed their technology since COVID. They're doing things very frequently, like flipped classroom, which means that they're teaching a lesson on video, the students have to watch it the night before they come into class, and then they have time to unwrap what the lesson was about. If it was a mathematics topic, they can ask the students, "Where did you find difficulty?" Um, you know, do let's do this exercise together. And there's more time for the individual to get some attention from the teacher rather than the teacher just pure teaching. So that's that's something that a lot of teachers did during COVID, and that they carried back in. So those kinds of tactics are things that teachers are using now that maybe they weren't using as regularly before. And looking then at the education training boards um, in Ireland, what are their futures and what does the model look like or what should the model look like in order to be able to keep pace at what is required uh, in the education, in the curriculum? 
Well, obviously, if you're talking about technology, we'd love more investment in technology to allow the, the schools to develop themselves. Obviously, there's a big role for continuing professional development for teachers in the technology area, because as you said, the AI challenge is a big challenge, but there are also the simple things of knowing how to use what's already been out there so that teachers feel comfortable and feel confident. And that was one of the things we learned most yesterday with John Lonergan speaking to us, that confidence is a really strong predictor of student performance, so that if we can build confidence and vocabulary, that that really helps the student to thrive in the classroom. Um, so for ETBs in the future, I think they're the lessons that we took away from it. And of course there is adaptation of skills and training which is required. Is there mechanisms in place to keep pace with that? Yes, I mean there's a, there's a very big programme recommended by the OECD Skills Review for Ireland that indicates that we have a lot of work to do with employers, for example, to incentivize to incentivise employers to come back with their employees and develop skills, for example, in management and leadership, to develop skills that would be more more pertinent to the future. And those skills already been developed in Loudmead in the Advanced Manufacturing Centre, for example, in Dundalk, where it's a leading a leading light, if you like, of training. They are, they are very flexible kinds of skills and skills that will really help people to find skills that are useful into the future, not just the skills that, that would are needed right now. Mm-hmm. I note um, some of your keynote speakers and you spoke about John Lonergan, but one that uh, caught my eye was Bernie McNally, the sec chair of the Department of Education. What does she have to say and was she in unison with what your requirements needs and I suppose you, your vision, your vision for, for the future is? Yeah, I think we, we were delighted to have the Secretary General down and she spoke very positively about the contribution that ETBs are making, particularly in relation to the programme called RAILS, which is the um, programme dealing with Ukrainian refugees and placing refugees into um, homes and into schools. So the the big focus for the ETBs was to make sure that every student in the country had a a school place. That's been done successfully around the country. And she praised the ETBs for their job in helping to coordinate all the stakeholders who are involved in that. I think there's been a brilliant response from education in general where students were welcomed into the schools. They were given whatever supports they were needed that were needed in relation to English language. And we heard from one of the, those students yesterday who was really inspirational in saying all that had been done and very grateful for what had been done for him to give him a chance to go into his leaving cert in 2024. So what does the roadmap look like for the future for ETBIs? And is it a case that on the basis of what you heard that maybe there was a couple of things there that will necessitate us changing direction in the future? I think that there's a big programme of transformation in the further education training landscape and we're following that up. Um, the, the Secretary-General was interested in the school side. That's the part that she's engaged with us on because we have two departments looking after education and training boards now. Um, one of them, one of those is the Department of Further and Higher Education. That's on the further education side. And on the school side, she was talking about reconfiguration, which is that process that's underway to make school more more schools multi-denominational at primary level. We have over 3,000 schools at primary level and I think almost 90% of them are, over 90% of them are under patronage of a church. So there needs to be a, a change in that. Everybody recognises a change needed and she is going to propose that there will be a plan to deal with reconfiguration 
published to be published before Christmas. That was her news yesterday to us. Okay, so ten years since the sixteen educational training boards were established and their evolution in terms of how you track it and its success or its success or measured in terms of metrics, has it been the fit for purpose success story that we have envisaged? Yes, I suppose it came out of the crisis. So it was part of um, the, the cutbacks that happened in, in around about two thousand and nine, and by the time we were amalgamated in two thousand and thirteen. It was a cost-cutting, and that was the that was the impetus behind it. So now, ten years on, I think ETBs are really standing up for themselves, and they're very professional, doing a very good job in their own areas, and are well known for the range of services from primary through post-primary and into further education and training. I think in Loudmead, you'll be very aware of all of the developments that have happened there. There's been a recent announcement in relation to Drogheda, for example. Um, there's 3D printing of concrete in Drogheda, as well as the Advanced Manufacturing Centre and the Training Centre itself in, in Dundalk, and all of the other services in, in the further education landscape, as well as the development of the schools in Loudmead. Paddy Lavelle, General Secretary of the Education and Training Boards Ireland, thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. A full-scale reform of the disability sector is needed, according to the Rehab Group. It held a demonstration outside Leinster House calling on the government to invest in services. The group say people with disabilities seeking private rented accommodation and housing crisis are facing enormous challenges. Well, joining us this morning is Emer Costello, Head of Advocacy and Campaigns with Rehab. Emer, good morning. Thank you for joining us. What is Rehab? What does it do? How does it make a difference? Good morning. Yeah, Rehab is one of the largest disability service providers in the country. We would support around 12,000 adults uh, and children across uh, across the state. And uh, we're kind of comprised in three different entities. We have Rehab Care, uh, where we provide respite and residential services for people. We have the National Learning Network, where we provide education and training for people. And then we have employability and social enterprises. We would be one of the largest uh, employers of people with disabilities in the state. And really what we want to do is we want to try and empower the people uh, who we support to live independent lives where they can, to live the lives of their of, of their choosing. But it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, for us to support the people that say uh, that 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 we serve, and it's becoming increasingly difficult for uh, the everybody working within disability services at the moment. I think that the disability sector is really in crisis at the moment, and there's really a very strong and urgent need mm-hmm. of reform across the board in terms of um in terms of what's available to people with disabilities, and in terms of how the organisations that try to support. Uh, those people uh, are funded as well. And of course it does come down to funding and your organisation like so many others are knocking on the door of the Minister for Finance looking for money that not is not necessarily there in the quantity that you require. So at best what do you want from, what can you expect to get in reality from the Minister? Um, well I think that first of all we would say that uh, there, there are two kind of basic key demands, and we were up yesterday speaking to our public representatives, meeting public representatives from all parties, trying to put our message across about what is needed. And first of all, in terms of the people who we would 
who we serve and uh, a lot of them came uh, a lot of the people who use our services from Rehab Care from NLN they came with us yesterday and they had a very strong message to government yesterday and they said the cost of disability coping with the cost of disability amid of cost of living crisis is just absolutely impossible um, and for many of them it means that they can't afford to keep the heating on it means that they can't afford to uh, to, to, to buy their weekly groceries or it means that they can't afford to actually uh, move into independent living um, as as well so th- we what one of the areas that we're looking for is a cost of disability payment now the government made a start on that last year they gave 500 euro as a one-off payment uh, for people with disabilities we're looking for a regular cost of disability payment on top of basic social welfare rates so we'd like to see an increase in the, in the social welfare rates i think along with many other groups working with uh working with people across civil society would like to see an increase in the basic social welfare rates of at least 30 euro per week and we would also like to see the introduction of a real cost of disability payment either on a weekly or a monthly basis and that would be more than the 500 euro while welcome last year that uh we we, we want something substantial there did you and get the other thing that we're looking for yeah so sorry mm-hmm. go on yeah go on yeah, so the other the other area then that we're looking for, the, the cost of disability payment is really important to the people who use our services. But as, as you mentioned, the sector itself is in crisis um, because the organisations who try to provide services for people with disabilities uh, are really, really being starved of, uh, of, of funding. And there are... Um, so we're what, what is called a Section 39 organisation, which means that the government uh, say that they give us grants, that they're not employers, uh, but yet they enter into contracts with us to provide essential services. And we provide many of the same services that the HSE provide or that what are called Section 38 organisations yeah, provide. And, and that's probably no another story in us. relation to a dispute story. over but payment. The problem, yeah. the, but, the, but the problem there, Alan, is, is that what, what's happening is, is that uh, the people who work uh, for rehab group and the people who work in other Section 39 organisations, they are paid differently. They've got different terms and conditions uh, as people who do the exact same job in the HSE or in the um, or in the other what are called Section 38 organisations. And they've essentially and been decoupled and, and they're getting different pay. But but you are, th- there exactly. is strike, ha- strike action happening. While we drifted into that conversation, can I just ask you, they are still not for moving in relation to what the position is. It's going to be indefinite strike actions. Is that still where it stands? Well, it's looking like that unless there is movement from government. I, like, I understand that the... The, the, the unions have balloted a number of the organisations concerned. Now, Rehab Group wasn't one of those organisations that was balloted at this point. Um, so a number of organisations have been balloted and I understand that they voted overwhelmingly uh, for, for strike action. We would be looking to government to enter into meaningful negotiations with the Section 39 organisations and to try and resolve this before it gets to the stage where we we will have an indefinite strike. Whilst you haven't been balloted on it, I presume that you would be willing to support the level of action that's been undertaken or the view that you have no choice in this matter or those organisations have no choice and it's the only form of recourse they have is to take this indefinite action. 
that's like that's the, that's that's the view of the the um the, the organizations that were balloted as i said like there is very very strong feeling across the board on this like we have the exact like we, we we provide the exact same services the people have the exact same level of qualifications um a lot of people are working um, and what we're finding is, is that we're faced with a complete crisis of recruitment and retention as well because it's really hard for us to recruit people um when the hse or the other organizations are offering um are are offering substantially better pay terms and conditions for people. And what we find very often is is that we're uh, we're we're taking people on who are really dedicated, committed to working uh, within the health sector, within the disability services. But we find then that maybe when they come in as personal assistants or carers or whatever, they find then that uh, once we um we we can train them to a certain level, and then they have uh, they move on and they move into the HSE. And the Section 38 organisations, and like we're uh, essentially providing a training camp for these organisations, and we're not being treated fairly. And it's not a level playing field, and it should be a level playing field because uh, our organisations, the government is completely dependent on organisations like Rehab Group and the other Section 39 organisations, the Irish Wheelchair Association, who provide uh, these these services, and the government. Uh, has um, I, and enters into a service level agreement with us, asks us to provide the services, uh, and asks us and demands that we provide them uh, at uh, the ex- exact same quality okay. and standard and governance that the and, and rightly so that all the other organisations, but yet we're not being funded to do that. Okay, Emer. well, of course, then this permeates down to the individuals who require your support and your services and they have been impacted significantly. Talk to me about, you know, on the ground, what has this resulted for individuals who require your services? I think for for people who require services, like one of the areas that we find uh, that is particularly problematic, as I mentioned, is the the recruitment and retention. And like some of our staff would say that you know, like people get uh, because people with disabilities, um, they 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 require a, a degree of support, and they like a degree of routine uh, with, with 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 within their lives and how they structure their lives. And it can be really difficult if there's a constant churn and turnover of staff it can be really difficult uh, for people to um to to to, to adapt to that um, and it, it also means that uh, the services that we would like to provide how we would provide them uh, can can be can be impacted for our service users no i think that across the board uh Everywhere that I have been uh, within within the rehab group, the staff are so dedicated and they are so mm-hmm. professional. And I know that everybody is out trying to do kind of you know at this stage people are out trying to do three people's work instead of just one person. Uh, let me work. just ask you, and it is not it is not fair, and it's not fair on our service users either because they deserve the same level of service. They deserve, and their they, they and their families deserve the exact same level of mm-hmm. service. They they, they, they they deserve the same uh, quality uh, as uh, families who have um, as people within the services. Okay, Emer, I'm running out of time on this, but I just want to pick you up on the point that you said earlier on that you met the individuals 
political um, individuals and stakeholders, uh, they gave you, I presume, a sympathetic hearing, but in reality, that's all they can give you. They're not going to give you anything else because they just don't have the money. We heard in this programme as well where we have an overrun on the uh, health budget. There was a figure of a, of a billion. It's looking like it's going to be a billion and a half which has to be plugged. Yeah, but uh, like, well, I, 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 I don't agree with you there that the funding isn't there. Like, the, no, I'm not saying it's not. Uh, but what I'm saying to you is there'll be a difficulty for you to getting the slice of the cake that you're looking for when you take it in the round that everybody else is looking for money as well. But like, well, what we are saying, and what we were saying very loud and clearly, is is that people with disabilities have to be prioritised in this in, in, in this budget. They have been forgotten in too many budgets and they really do need to be prioritised. The government has a huge, like, the government has done an awful lot of work on this. There have been a lot of reports done and the government have said that they want to do this. Like, we have certain obligations. We have now signed the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. We have an obligation under international law to fulfil uh, the rights of or, and to vindicate the rights of people with disabilities which hasn't been done to date and it is time that the government took action and I completely appreciate that there are many competing and conflicting demands on government but we're saying there's two government there's two budgets left to run maximum in this programme for government and it is time that people with disabilities were prioritised it's time that the government fulfil its own promises in its own programme okay. for government which it's set knowing the, the, the budgetary parameters in 2020. So we would believe that it is time now for people with disabilities to get their their, their, their first slice of the, sh- of, of the cake and that's what we are looking for. Very good. We leave it there. Emer Costello, Head of Advocacy and Campaigns with Rehab. Thanks for joining us. Before we take a break, I want to get to some of your... Um, your comments, particularly around the Garda, it's a story that just keeps on giving. Anne says she appreciates that it's not the Minister's place to intervene in the Garda dispute, but surely somebody has to step in and try and mediate. How on earth can Drew Harris stay in his role when he's lost the confidence of nearly the entire force? We cannot allow this situation to continue. If the Minister can't step in, then who can? Tommy thinks it was a bit unfair of you. Alan, to suggest that Gardaí are turning their back on the public and abandoning their protect and serve responsibilities by taking this course of action. They've tried the proper routes, they've had the meetings and discussions with interested parties, and it's gotten them nowhere, so they had no choice but to deploy heavier tactics. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Defence Forces may be called in to provide extra security at Leinster House. The Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party has made a submission to a task force on protecting politicians, saying the use of the army should be explored. It follows the aggressive targeting of politicians as they arrived and left the Doyle last week. Declan Power Security and Defence Analyst joins us uh, this morning. Morning, Declan. It's been quite a week. Major drug seizure, GRA dispute, and now a call for army boots on the ground. Whilst we haven't got there yet. Is there a real prospect of that happening, do you think? Good morning, Alan. How are you? Nice to speak to you again. Um, uh, army boots on the ground, the army. When in doubt, when there's a problem, whether it's a bin strike, whether it's a, uh, a drug seizure, whether it's the windows that need to be cleaned, call in the army. It's the old perennial. Or to I, scoop I the snow off the streets, bring in the army. Precisely. I can remember those That's days. It. That's it. Yeah, from, 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 as I say, sweeping up the snow, the litter to the high-tech, abseiling or rappelling rather out of a helicopter. 
Now, there's, I have to say, it, it brings a wry smile to my face. While this week has been a great week in, in one sense for the organisation, people have seen what the tip of the spear can do, uh, you know, wh- where, where the investment, such as it is, where it actually goes, how this uh, kind of expertise that takes a long time to grow uh, and develop. And it's not just about training, it's about operational experience. Uh, and then also the, the relationship building between partner nations, because this didn't happen just because Ireland was on watch. In fact, it couldn't really have happened if it was purely because Ireland was on watch, because we don't have the means to do that. While we had the means to do a surgical, precise operation, we don't really have the means to patrol our sea lanes uh, 24-7. But to come back to the, the key uh, point in question, and the, the reason I bring that in is because what I've just mentioned, that's the core function and mission of our defence forces, of any armed forces of a democratic state. Yeah. What has been mooted now is what I would call another example of the illiteracy within our political ranks when it comes to understanding matters of national security. The security of the doll is, uh, is, is an important uh, matter. It's not a primary role for our defence forces. It's a primary role for Angarda Siakana. However, the defence forces do have a, a distinct role in it. There is a detachment of armed military police on duty in Dáil Éireann 24-7. And in terms of, of maybe uh, augmenting that or reassessing that detachment and how they uh, are used, that is something for consideration. Mm-hmm. But their role is very much about the security of the precinct of Dáil Éireann and indeed of the personnel, of the people in it. Uh, so we'll say, had you a situation whereby uh, you had a sort of a Capitol Hill situation that the mob stormed the Dáil and were becoming a direct physical threat to members of, uh, of Dáil Éireann, and then, uh, obviously anybody, the members of the public or uh, clerical staff or others uh, in Dáil Éireann, those armed personnel would be brought into play. But... Really, the issue here isn't that. The issue here is the protection of people going about their daily lawful business, coming and going from the all, and being impeded by uh, aggressive, bullying, hectoring, uh, antisocial uh, groups that carry out uh, you know, illegal activities, uh, you know, such as assault and theft, as we heard last week. Uh, and again, that really, that's the primary role of that is, is Angarda Shikana. Yeah, just on um, that, Declan, it's just um, crossed my mind. The rules of engagement when it comes to what the army do, I presume is considerably different to what the Gardaí do. And I say that in the context of uh, a member of the Defence Forces, as in the army, being on the barricades, manning them, and they find themselves under threat from protesters. Can they use greater force than the Gardaí can? No, they can't. They're subject to the laws of the land. Okay. They're subject to, uh, to strict uh, regulation. It depends on how they're deployed. I mean, unlike a lot of other Western militaries, uh, our defence force have a lot of training uh, and expertise in more recent years in public order duties that goes back to the preparation for the U- EU Day of Accession uh, back around, I think it was it 2008, uh, that you know, was held in Dublin and there were all these threats by these anarchist groups to disrupt and so a lot of um, military personnel were trained to be able to augment the Gardaí in that situation. And that was an extreme situation. Uh, they've also been trained in these duties for uh, overseas missions where uh, you can go from uh, combat roles to uh, hard-edged public mm-hmm. order roles very quickly. But it's not, it's not an ideal scenario. And you certainly don't want situations where armed troops are being asked to carry out, uh, to go from, from securing a premises to public order duties while armed. 
Uh, nobody wants to see that. No, uh, it's not a good look, and that, that's with the no. greatest respect to the Defence Forces, but it just doesn't look good where you have sea army on the street, and you see it in a, in a lot of places in the United States, and, and it puts you on edge slightly. No, I completely agree, and, and most people who have been professional soldiers of any grade or rank would agree with you. Uh, the Defence Forces, the armed forces of a state, are calibrated to be the professional managers of violence, if you want to use a term the sociologist Anthony Giddens coined. That's, that's their role. They're the, they exercise lethal force on behalf of the state. Um, and they, they augment and support and create, if necessary, the secure environment for other activities, be it policing or overseas, sometimes for humanitarian work to take place. They, they don't, they're not there to do the policing or to do the humanitarian work, except in extremis where nobody else can do it, and for a very temporary limited period. Mm. Now, and there's, it's, it's hark, it harks back to the days of the Troubles when there was a greater presence and visibility of the Defence Forces on the ground for, for obvious reasons. Absolutely. And you touched on something else that's quite uh, pertinent to this matter as well. They're, they're just the general optics, the public relations aspect. What does it say that a leading you know, member of the European Union, uh, a leading premier of Western European state and democracy, needs its armed forces on the streets for routine enough security matters. I'm still, I'm of a generation of Irish soldiers that would have routinely been involved in age of the civil power operation. It was our bread and butter on a day-to-day basis, from cash escorts to prisoner escorts to prisoner guarding in uh, Port Leash to securing the border alongside our sister service and Garda Síochána. And when people would be visiting, tourists in small villages who would see a detachment of heavily armed troops take up positions. I can remember in one border location some years back, a few American tourists who got a shock. They thought that they had blundered across the border. They thought we were British troops because that's what they expected to see in Northern Ireland. And, you know, people often don't realise in Ireland when they continually call for the army to do things that are not generally speaking uh, they're certainly not primary or secondary roles for the army. That actually suggests to the rest of the world that your system is broken down because an army is there, an armed force is there to do whatever needs to be done when all else has failed. Uh, and even if it's a, a, a emergency work, as I was joking about there, in yeah. wind strikes or, or extreme weather, yeah, there should always be a plan where the army could be used, but it should be an extremist. They're not the primary responders in those situations. And it says... Our systems are not working. They're broken down. And if we're routinely turning to them for things, it, 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 it casts uh, aspersions as to our ability to plan ahead and to be engaged in a little bit of strategic foresight. And to come back to the point here, one of the things I, I, that I think is important to note that, uh, about the Dáil protests, there is a growing coarseness in public debate. There is a nastiness that has been facilitated perhaps by uh, a rational and aggressive doctrine perpetuated over the uh, various online platforms that has made people emboldened about uh, expressing their anger and dissatisfaction yeah. to public representatives. Yeah. So I, I agree, public representatives are, need to take more care about their personal security. But that's not going to be done by either the Guardi or the Army. Politicians need to start investing in a little bit of situational awareness training for themselves. It starts with these kinds of things. And if De- I could make Declan, one more point. No, Sorry, yeah, yeah, we have got, no, because time's running out and something sure, sure. arose here since this drug seizure and that was the existence of the Army Ranger Wing. The number of people who were not aware that we had one and what they did is frightening. Perhaps you could tell us in about two minutes what they do 
and when they're deployed. Well, the, the Ranger Wing are the premier special operations group of the Defence Forces. Every armed force has one. They've been in existence since 1980. A team of officers and NCOs were sent over to the United States to train in the Special Forces Warfare Centre in Fort Bragg and Fort Benning before that in uh, Georgia. So there was a, a gestation period where uh, there were these courses ran throughout the Army, Command Ranger courses, they were known. It, it, they were became a, a full-time force in 1980. And they are on a par with the likes of the SAS and the Navy SEALs. They train and exchange groups with them and with other European special forces. And they have a domestic role in internal security, such as what we saw uh, recently. And they have an external role where they provide force security for Irish and partner nation contingents operating and overseas operations as well uh, that we would take part in or have an involvement in. They're what one would call a strategically... Uh, active unit in that they're not used for routine things and the the personnel are drawn from all branches of the defence forces they have to do an extremely arduous selection course over a four week period to see are the the right stuff and then only then does their real training begin ranger personnel are trained to operate in small groups to be highly autonomous they exercise initiative beyond what their rank would normally uh, demand and it's a very different career path most soldiers that do it, serve in it for a period and rotate back okay. into the regular army and they bring a lot of expertise with them. To sum it so up, they, do not mess with these guys. No, they're, they're the tip of the sphere. Yeah. And if people remember the TV series that uh, Ray Goggins leads, the team of X-Rangers, yes. instructional yeah. staff, you'll get a flavour. They're, they're, they're uh, extremely resilient and resourceful people and I've had the pleasure of serving with a number of them and count some of them among my friends. If I could make one last point. Yeah, do, please about, do. Uh, security at all, Aaron. Uh, there's, again, there's a degree of hysteria. We shouldn't lose track of the fact it was only 200-odd people. But it does draw us to a point that probably a sensible thing going forward would be to have a space for protests, large protests at Dalairn, down the street at, at Mozart Street outside Buswell, where you can have a cordon sanitaire for safety, for everybody's safety when needed. Because when the Gardaí are asked to escalate if a public order situation is getting out of hand, they need the elbow room to do a thing. There's such a thing as kettling, for example, that was developed uh, by the Metropolitan Police. And I've seen, I've seen Gardaí train external police forces in it. And it's where you use weight of numbers by the police mm-hmm. to corral troublemakers and move them away from the site, not batting charge them. It's much more controlled. But to do that, you'd be able to, you need to be able to deploy the numbers. And I, I think the recent protest shows that letting a protest develop directly in front of the gates at Dolairn isn't a particularly okay. good idea for safety. Declan, we must leave there. Declan Power, Security and Defence Analyst, thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Demand for properties holding up despite interest rate increases and an ongoing supply shortage is supporting prices. The latest house price report from property listings website daft.ie suggests. The report captured a 1.1% increase in asking prices for properties in the three months to September compared to the prior three-month period. Joining us this morning is Ronan Lyons, economist with Trinity College and author of that particular report. Rona, good morning. Thanks for joining us. I suppose it's a case of as we were, population centres seeing a moderation of house price inflation, but it's gathering pace outside those areas, but not not hugely so. Yeah, I I think the the way to summarise it is that um, we had a, a sort of pattern of price increases emerge just after COVID set in of of big increases in the cheaper markets outside of the urban centres and and smaller increases in the cities. Um, 
th- that pattern is still there, but the the level of increase is is much smaller. So a year ago, we were talking countrywide about kind of eight percent increases in, in in prices year on year. Now we're talking about three or four percent increases year on year, albeit bigger in say Connacht, Ulster, and smaller in say Dublin. And of course, uh, Loud and Meath are, are, are somewhere in between with mm-hmm. increases of about four percent or five percent year on year. Well, back in the day, we saw the likes of the satellite towns uh, where you could get value for money, where we didn't see the huge increases. That's changed. We have to go further afield, but the further we seem to be going out, we still see the increase in prices and that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get value for money. Yeah, I mean, the, the example of Leitrim is an interesting one because um, the prices in Leitrim in the first half, or sorry, the first three months of 2020 were about the same as they had been 20 years before in the year 2000. That, that's kind of what the, the oversupply in the, in the boom years had, had done, it had kept prices down. Uh, but since then, Leitrim prices are up by about one third. Um, whereas you don't have anything like the same increase in, in the last three years in, in say, Dublin or, or the, the areas around Dublin. The cheaper areas are still cheaper, but that gap is narrowing. OK, demand, I presume, is holding up because of the lack of supply. I mean, we've seen a raft of interest rate increases. They don't seem to be impacting the market. And we saw the figures from the Banking and Payments Federation Ireland yesterday, which pointed to a huge number of first-time buyers still drawing down mortgages. So it, it, it presumably is the supply issue, is it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, as a country, we're in the middle of a long phase of additional housing requirements. Uh, we've population going up. We've added, I think, 1.6 million people since um, the, the start of the millennium. Uh, in percentage terms, that's kind of off the charts compared to most of our, our neighbours in Europe. But it's not just about population increases. It's also about uh, declining household size. We used to live in households of four or five people. Now it tends to be two or three. So even with the same population, you need more more homes. All of that means we need to be building lots of homes. We are building more than we were a few years ago, but not enough compared to society's needs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why the demand is strong and, and why there are so few properties on the market at the moment. It's, it's interesting. I think it's about 15 years since the, um, uh, since the banking crisis. And prior to that, we were building 90,000 units a year. If we could do it then, we could do it now. But the prospect of that happening is just not a reality, is it, Ronan? Not at the moment, no. One of the things, the, one of the legacies of the, the Celtic Tiger bubble is it inflated construction costs, um, meaning that when the crash came, even though there was new housing needed, it wasn't viable. Costs were far higher than prices. Nobody really noticed in the good times. And then when the bad times hit, those high costs really, um, really hurt. And costs are lower to reduce um, than, than, than prices are. We still haven't really recovered from that. It costs are still high uh, relative to other countries or relative to our own incomes. Uh, and that's weighing down on the number of homes we build each year. So perhaps not 90,000, although we probably have a deficit, if you want to call yeah. it a housing deficit of maybe two or 300,000 homes. But certainly the steady state rate of, of producing new homes each year in this country should be something like 50 or 60,000. Okay, it seems that we're probably at the end of the upward uh, cycle in terms of mortgage increases, or I beg your pardon, interest rate increases from the ECB. Supply is still going to be an issue. So looking for the, the, the next quarter, more or less it's going to be as is with these figures, do you anticipate? I think so. And when you look into the regional details, I mentioned Leitrim earlier and, and some of the other markets in the, in the northwest 
are are still seeing increases year on year of maybe six, seven, eight, nine percent. Uh, but if you look at the most expensive markets in the country, Dublin four, Dublin six, Dublin eight. Uh, South County Dublin, some of those are actually seeing prices lower now than a year ago. And and that tells me that the interest rate effect is happening, as in it, 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 the, the cost of more expensive homes is even more expensive when interest rates are higher and people are looking elsewhere to try and meet their, their housing needs. I think we'll see more of that over the next 12 months uh, until perhaps interest rates start to come down again. Very good. Roland Lyons, economist with Trinity College Dublin and author of the Daft.ie report, joining us this morning. Thank you for that. That is it. We leave it there for this Friday. Uh, thanks for joining me over the past two weeks. Mike's back on Monday. Thanks to Chris on sound, to Maggie on production. From me, Alan Cantwell, for now, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie